Good morning. morning. We are glad you're here today. It's a beautiful day, beautiful fall day, and we appreciate so much your presence. If you are visiting, thank you for coming our way. We invite you to come back. We'd love to have you back here on a regular basis. If you're looking for a church home, as always, we encourage you to consider the work here. We'd love to have you as part of our church family. And I know I'm prejudiced, but I think we've got a lot of great people here, young and old. And so we are very grateful for all the blessings and favors that we enjoy from God. I want to invite you to turn with me in our lesson today to the book of Luke. We're going to look at Matthew and Luke, but specifically today, I want to call your attention to Luke chapter 23, and we'll make a couple of notations from Matthew chapter 27. In Luke's account, in verse 33, Luke said, When they were come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the thieves, one on the right hand and the other on the left. What I want to do in our lesson today is isolate one of the men who died on that day, one of the thieves. And I want to talk a little bit about, specifically today, the thief on the cross. Because I think it's an interesting study. I was thinking about this particular text this past week, and I got to thinking about some of the things that emerge out of a study of the thief on the cross. And so I want to begin by calling attention, first and foremost, to the punishment of the thief. Now... I think the first thing that we ought to do is maybe try to somehow understand, to the best of our ability, the context. Jesus, as you know, has gone through a laborious trial. He has been wrongly convicted. The sentence imposed by Pontius Pilate was death, even though Pontius Pilate admitted three different times that Jesus was innocent but He delivered Him up to be crucified. And so that central cross, the very Son of God, was put to death for us. He died for our sins. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, at verse 21, Him who knew no sin, He became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And Peter, you remember, in 1 Peter chapter 2, said that Jesus bore our sins in His own body on the cross, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. So that central cross, the Lord Jesus, was put to death. But then, either to His right or to His left, we had a man described as a thief. Both actually were thieves, malefactors, criminals. We'll talk a little bit about first and foremost, his criminal activities. Now, we really don't have a lot of insight into exactly what this man has done in the past to merit capital punishment, but whatever he had done in the past was enough to put him to death under Roman law. His criminal activities, he's described as a robber, a thief, a malefactor, and a criminal. I would imagine that this man had quite a lengthy record in all probability. I don't think that when this fellow was born, his parents 
when they looked at that small child, said, you know what, he's going to grow up and be a thief one day. I have no idea what got him into a life of crime. I do know what the law said back in Exodus chapter 20 at verse 15. God said through Moses in the long ago, you're not to kill, you're not to steal. And so this man apparently had broken that law. Now, in looking at this particular account, it's my conviction, and look, I wouldn't impose this on anyone else, but I tend to think that this man had a Jewish background. And I'll talk more about that in just a minute or two. But you know, God had instructed the children of Israel to teach their children diligently in the Word of God. They were to teach them when they sat in their house, when they walked by the, by the way, when they would lie down, when they would rise up. So God wanted His Word, His teaching, in the hearts and lives of His children or in the hearts and lives of His people. So His criminal activities. And then what about the consequences of His activities? Here's a man that's being put to death. And the reason is because he made bad decisions in life. I don't know if this man was a friend of the other thief or robber that was being put to death. Have no idea if they were partners in crime. But I know this. He was paying a heavy price for violating the law of the land. Now, did he break the moral law of Almighty God? Well, the answer would be yes. But not just the moral law, but also the law of the land, as I said a moment ago. Back in the book of Proverbs in chapter 13, at verse 15, Solomon makes a statement that I think really ought to impress us with the importance of wise decisions in life. Solomon would write, the way of the transgressor is hard. We would say it like this, whatever you sow, you're going to reap. This man sowed bad seed. As a result of that, paid a heavy price, didn't he? Now I mentioned a moment ago his birth. Most of us as parents, we want the very best for our children, don't we? As parents, we don't envision them making bad decisions and ultimately paying the ultimate price for those decisions. But there are a lot of men and women today who are on death row. Why? Because they made bad decisions. It might have been the case they chose to align themselves with the wrong kind of people. And Paul said, be not deceived, evil companionship corrupts good morals. And so the people that we associate with ultimately have a bearing on what kind of person we are. Somebody said one time that there are five people in your associations that will ultimately influence the direction of your life. So the people that you choose to associate with have a tremendous bearing on your life. Now, Paul in Galatians chapter 6 would write, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Did you know the decisions you make today can potentially determine your eternal destiny. Now, some decisions that we make on a regular basis, they're very minute in nature. Nothing that would be uh, considered weighty by any means. But there are some decisions that we make that will have a tremendous impact on the course that we choose in this life. So first and foremost, the punishment 
of this thief. But then secondly, let's talk for a moment or two about the persecution by this thief. Now Matthew's account tells us back in chapter 27 that these two men that were crucified with Jesus, that they began to join in with the crowd as they mocked, blasphemed, and taunted the Son of God. Those who were standing at the foot of the cross, they taunted the sovereign position of Jesus. You remember what they said? If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Was Jesus the Son of God? Was there not ample evidence throughout that three, three and a half year period of time that He was upon planet Earth to say to people that, look, this is God's only Son. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus wanted to know what people were saying about His identity, they said, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, others, Jeremiah, some, Elijah, one of the prophets. But He wanted to know who do you say that I am? Peter, of course, affirmed him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John chapter 6, Jesus in that context says that he is the bread of life, that living bread that came down from heaven. John tells us that his teaching fell upon hard hearts. Many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. The Lord then turned to the twelve and asked them, Will you also go away? And you remember what Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life eternal. And then he said, We have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The people in the Lord's day, did they have the opportunity to come to a full understanding that this is God's only begotten Son. I think they did. Remember what John said, John 1 verse 14? The Word became flesh and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Imagine if you can, having lived in the first century, and you're watching the Lord Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle. And Jesus would say in John 5 verse 36, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So you have the opportunity to see Him perform the miraculous. And then, like Peter and the other apostles and others of that day, you hear Him preach and teach the wonderful words of life. No wonder it was said of Him in John 7, 46, no man ever spoke like this man. His teaching was incomparable. So here are people at the foot of the cross, along with the criminals of the robbers, and they're saying, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross, and guess what? We'll believe you. And then not only did they question His sovereign position, but they questioned His sovereign power, didn't they? Remember what they said? He saved others. You know, if He's really the Son of God, come down from the cross, we'll believe you. The text tells us, but they went back to what had been recorded by John in chapter 2. When Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his own body. And so they taunted him. They jeered him. And both thieves took part in this. But then there is a third thing I think that's 
very important to understand. It has to do with the perception of the thief. Now, Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning along with two thieves. They were upon that cross for many hours. The Bible tells us from 12 o'clock noon until 3 in the afternoon, darkness covered the land. Well, as you begin reading the text, it seems as if one of the thieves is making a turn in how he's thinking. At one point, he's jeering and blaspheming the name of the Lord. If you're the Christ, save us. But now he turns to the other thief and asks him, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Here's a man that's having a change of heart. He's beginning to rethink some things. Maybe this is the Son of God. Maybe this is the Christ, the Anointed One. Turns to the other thief and basically exonerates the Lord, doesn't he? He said, we indeed justly, we receive the due reward of our deeds. In other words, we're being put to death today because of what we have done. And guess what? We are dying justifiably. Under the law of the land, we deserve to die. And so here is a change of heart coming about. He says about Jesus, this man has done nothing amiss. In other words, this is the sinless Son of God, isn't he? But then there's not just a change of heart, which says something about a penitent heart. And you remember Jesus said, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish in Luke 13, 3 and verse 5. And so then there is this cry for help. He turns to Jesus, the Son of God, and He said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. How did He know anything about a kingdom? Had anyone been talking about a coming kingdom? Do you remember John the Baptist when he began his public ministry as recorded by Matthew in chapter 3? The Bible tells us that John the Baptist began preaching and teaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So here's a man that obviously knew something about the kingdom. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 9, 1, Jesus said, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. The kingdom that we're talking about is not a physical kingdom. The Lord Jesus said before Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. Not a physical entity. James and John, you remember, they wanted, they wanted to get in on the ground floor. They wanted to sit when the Lord came in His kingdom, one on the right, the other on the left. So here's this man, and he turns to Jesus, and he said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. 
And then Jesus would say in the text here, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Before we talk about that, I want to just maybe make a couple of observations. There are a lot of people that look at this text and they want to use it as a paradigm for salvation. They want to say, well, this is how the thief on the cross was saved. Matter of fact, we had a, somebody leave a voicemail not long ago. We had done a program, Counterpoint, BJ and I, and somebody called in and left a very heated statement. And they cited the thief on the cross that the Lord didn't tell him he needed to be baptized. Well, you need to understand something. First and foremost, this man died under what dispensation? The Mosaic, didn't he? We're under what? We're under the law of Christ. It's a completely different covenant. In Matthew 26, before Jesus paid the ultimate price on Calvary, He said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. So we're talking about a whole different covenant. But if you go back and look at Matthew's account in chapter 3, you remember the Bible says that there went out to John Jerusalem, all Judea, and those around the Jordan. And they were baptized by Him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Who's to say this man hadn't been baptized by John the Baptist? Could he have been? How did he know something about the kingdom of God? I really believe that this man very well might have men of Jewish background. He knew something about the kingdom of God. He knew something about the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of John. And there's not a person on earth that can say he wasn't baptized according to what is recorded in Matthew chapter 3. Now, flip side of that is, I can't prove that it was. I'm just saying we don't know. And that is irrelevant to what we're talking about today. There's a third thought I would share. In Mark chapter 2 at verse 10, here's what the record says about Jesus. But that you might know that the Son of Man has power, listen to him, on earth to forgive sins. Now, I don't hear people using that verse to try to defend the fact that you don't have to be baptized into Christ. Look, the Lord on earth had that power, that authority. He had the right to tell somebody your sins are forgiven you. And so, the bottom line is, we are under a new dispensation. Here's what the Hebrew writer said, Hebrews 9, 15. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. It's called the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. The perfect law of liberty, James 1, verse 25. So, this man simply turned to Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, how do I become a member of the kingdom of God today? I do what the record says. What did John record in John chapter 3? Remember that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus? Except a man be born, again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought he was talking about a physical birth. He asked the question, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
And Jesus said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, when then did the teaching of Jesus take effect? Look at Pentecost Day, Acts chapter 2. Peter, as well as the other apostles, guided by the Holy Spirit, when they were asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said exactly what people had to do then, what people have to do today. Well, what was that? Repent, number one. And be baptized, number two. For what reason? For the remission of sins. If you want to be in the kingdom of God today, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to be baptized into Christ. Now, I'm not talking about baptism only. I'm saying you've got to put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. You've got to recognize Him as the great I Am. You've got to be willing to repent of your sins, turn from a life of sin. Paul would, write, would say on Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That's a command of God. And Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll perish. And then to confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart. Well, what is that? Jesus is the Son of God. And then we're baptized into Christ so that we might enjoy the remission of sins. We're baptized into Christ. We contact the blood of Christ and we are added to the body of Christ. That's the kingdom. That's what the Bible teaches. So I think it's important for us to just keep that in mind when we talk about the thief on the cross. Now, there's a fourth thing. It has to do with the promise made to the thief. Now imagine if you can, you're in the closing hours of your life. You know that death is imminent. You're in terrible pain, searing pain. Every muscle and joint in your body is crying out in agony. Your suffering is immense. And now you've had this change of heart and you've cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord responds to you with a confident, confident promise. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. What's paradise? It is the realm of the righteous. When Jesus died, He went to the Hadean realm, that is, the unseen world. There are two compartments in that unseen world. On the one hand, you have paradise or the bosom of Abraham as recorded by Luke in Luke 16. On the other hand, you have a place called Tartarus, spoken of by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 concerning the angels who sinned. They were cast down to Tartarus, that is, the abode of the unrighteous. And they await the judgment there. So here's the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the one who spoke this world into existence, the one who is dying for the sins of the human family, and he turns to this dying thief, and he says to him confidently, today you'll be with me in paradise. Don't you want that kind of confidence in your life? As a child of God, can I claim that same confidence? Can I not say, as the Lord affirmed in Luke 23, that in the waning hours of my life, I know that I'm going to be in the presence of God and I'm going to be in that realm 
called Abraham's bosom or paradise. Yes, I can, I can know that, can I? Didn't the Apostle Paul write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, we know that if this earthly house, this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Yes. Listen, that's confidence. And I really believe that God wants us to have confidence in His promises. Listen to what Paul wrote in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. He said that we live in hope of life eternal. Now note, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. When God makes a promise, does He back it up? Sure does. If God is not willing to stand behind His Word, then all that we believe in is vain. So we can have confidence. But not just confidence. Not only was there a confident promise, but there is what I might call a comforting promise. Can you imagine the pain those three men were in on that day? I mean, the searing pain. I mean, look at the Lord Jesus. He's been scourged, slapped, beaten. They spat on Him. To the best of His ability, He tried to carry the cross to Golgotha and yet fell beneath the weight of that cross. The pain that these men experienced is difficult for us to comprehend. This man's dying. He is being tortured. One of the reasons that one of the reasons that crucifixion became so prominent in the Roman Empire was that they wanted the victims of crucifixion to suffer as badly as was humanly possible. They perfected the art of crucifixion. These guys are in terrible agony. And here's the Lord Jesus confidently saying to him, today you're going to be with me in paradise. This is a confident promise. But then comforting, how so? Soon you'll be out of pain. There are people that will leave this world today in immense pain. They will hurt until their very last breath. This man, no doubt, writhing in pain. And yet here's Jesus saying to him, look, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, what about paradise? Remember what John wrote in Revelation 14, verse 13? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works follow them. In Luke 16, 25, when Jesus narrated the deaths of the rich man and Lazarus, Father Abraham said to the rich man, In your lifetime you receive good things, and Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you're tormented. This man was going to a place of comfort, bliss. He'd be in the presence of Almighty God. A dying thief. On that central cross, a man dying for the sins of the human family. 
On one of those crosses, a man dying in sin. But this cross, here's a man dying to sin. And in his death to sin, the assurance that he would be with the Lord. What about you today? Are you, are you a Christian? Are you a child of God? Have you done what they did on Pentecost Day to become a New Testament Christian? What would that involve? Well, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. You need to repent of your sins and then be immersed in water. And the reason is, it's at that point that you contact the blood that washes away all of your sins. Because ultimately, that's what takes care of the sin problem. The exhortation then is to be faithful until death. And the promise is the crown of life. If you're here today and maybe you need the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. Our goal is to go to heaven. One day if the Lord delays His coming, we will all be in paradise if we have lived for the Lord. Won't you come as we stand and sing?